This is David Tarkington. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For more information about our church, First Baptist Church of Orange Park, and our network, the First Family Network, go to firstfam.org. You can check out my site at davidtarkington.com. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I don't know if you're a highlighter or if you've given yourself permission to write in your Bible, but you can highlight that. That's pretty powerful. That, that, that's challenging. Let the manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, this is Paul writing to the church, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count yourselves more significant, or others more significant than yourselves. That's highlightable there too. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I don't know if you're a sports fan. Many of you are. You watch football all weekend in the fall. Some of you do. Some of you don't, but just work with me here. Last year, there's a, a player for the Seattle Seahawks that made sports news because he did something a little interesting after the game. He was playing, they were playing the Dallas Cowboys. After the game, he ran down to where the Cowboys go back into their locker room. It's not normal for a player from the opposing team to go down that hallway to the uh, home team's locker room, but he did. And he made his way to Jason Garrett, who's the head coach of the Cowboys, and, and, it, and cameras were following him all the time because you're wondering, what's this guy going to do when he gets up to the coach? So he gets up to the coach, and I'll paraphrase it, but basically he says, hurry up and sign me and get me out of Seattle. So Basically, this guy has some issues with ownership and his contract and his designation as a franchise player or that, what, whatever. I, that's really not my point, but he made the news again last week. Seattle Seahawks were playing. He fractured his leg. He's, I think he hurt his leg. I think he fractured it. He's put on the back of the, the athletic trainer cart. And they're playing in Seattle, I believe. I, I, I know that Seattle's playing. And as Earl Thomas is wheeled off the field by the trainers... He looks over to Pete Carroll, his coach, and his teammates wearing the Seahawks uniforms, and he waves at them. The kind of wave he gave is the kind you might get on the interstate. Jed Clampett called it a California howdy, but it didn't include all the fingers. I'll let you figure that one out. It's not something you would normally see from a player on your team. It's offensive. It's not expected. It's not right. He was angry. I don't know. I don't care why. It's just inappropriate for a lot of reasons. So imagine you're a teammate on the Seattle Seahawks and you see your, your guy wheeled off waving at you. It's a bit of a betrayal, feels like. Of course, that's just football. You could Google sports teams that had players that didn't like them. I mean, there's a whole list of them. I found them. It's amazing. 
Just because they wear the same uniform doesn't mean they like each other. Anybody that's ever played on a team, a sports team, knows that's a reality from uh, Pop Warner through high school and college. Just because you share a uniform doesn't mean you want to go out to eat afterwards. But there's something about being on the team that at least when you're on the field, at least when you're working towards the, the common goal, you can call them a teammate. What makes it really iffy is if you're not so sure if he's really on your team or not. It's a bigger deal when it has to do with uh, lives. Our history here in America, there is a name that has gone down in history, uh, infamous, so to speak. If you go back to some Revolutionary War history, you'll remember the name. Maybe you'll remember studying about Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold, who was a betrayer to his country or to his people, traitor to the United States, the, the newly found or not even necessarily formed country yet in battle against the, the, the British Empire. You can also do a Google about every country on the planet has a version of Benedict Arnold. Traitorous things that have been done for the sake of personal safety or maybe on personal wealth. Things that have been done in those cases. And those are severe and those are much more serious than a football player waving to his teammates. But as hurtful and damaging as those are and those breaches of trust are, even from the Benedict Arnold kind of story where lives are at stake, there is something more serious and more, more important even for the church today to, to acknowledge, and that is when there is disunity among the believers. When I was called here as pastor back in 2005, I throw that out just to remind people it's been a long time. Some of you are going, really? Others of you are going, is that all? So you kind of have that mix. But that was a call. It was said, we need unity in our church. And I, and I agree. I don't think that was necessarily something that was, was needed in 2005. I think it was needed in 1921 when this church was founded. I think it was needed every day and year from that point up to this point. Unity is always needed in the church of Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul is not alive right now, in case you didn't know. He's a dead guy writing to a bunch of dead people. This is history. But what makes it more than just history is that the Holy Spirit of God inspired Paul to write these words to a bunch of people that lived 2,000 years ago. Therefore, a book written by a dead guy to a bunch of dead people is not a dead book. It's a living word written by God through His Spirit to us today. And that's an amazing thing when you comprehend that, that that God could use Paul in such a way that 2,000 years later, in a language he did not speak, we are reading this today because we want to know what it is God would say to us. Here's what I know about when, when we read God's Word, when you hear it sung, when you go to Sunday school class or Bible study, here's a reality that maybe is forgotten at times. We're talking about forgetfulness this morning. When God speaks, when God's word is read, when God's word is declared in a sermon, in a teaching, in a song, God expects a response. Now that's not always something I've come to church expecting to do. I've grown up in church like some of you. Sometimes Sunday is church day because it always has been and it never was debatable in your family. But that means sometimes you come to church not responding to the Word of God, just like I have done. Just kind of going through the motion, so to speak. So when I come to the realization, when I read the Word of God, an expected response from me is, is He's awaiting that, to not respond to the Word of God 
in this sense would mean that I am sinning. So to just sit there and not respond would mean you are sinning by not responding to his word. Does that mean you have to come down an aisle? No. But it does mean that when we come together for the preaching and the teaching of the word of God, where the gospel is unapologetically placed out before us in the entirety of the word, we are expected as his children and as his church to respond accordingly. If a challenge is given and we ignore it, there is no other response that we can have than we are sinning by not responding. So I say that to us today, that when I declare, may we have ears to hear and eyes to see, may we also have the obedience to respond accordingly. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. I like the ESV. I like other translations as well. Some I'm not as big a fan of as others. I like the ESV. I like the New American Standard. That's another very solid translation. I'm going to ask if you could, guys, can you put that verse 27 back up on the screen for me? And while he's finding that, you'll look at the beginning of verse 27, that it begins with the word only. And in the English transliteration, as we have in the ESV, as also have in the New American Standard, the NASB, and and in other translations, you'll see the word transliterated from the Greek is only. But there's another translation, which is a very good translation, called the Christian Standard Bible. It used to be called the Holman Christian Standard Bible. They've revised it again. HCSB also stands for Hardcore Southern Baptist, in case you didn't know. That's the one we own as Southern Baptists, so we made our own, so we could sell the rights to that one. That's why there are so many different ones anyway. But in the HCSB or the CSB, that word that is transliterated as only in the ESV and in other translations The translators for the CSB translated it this way, and it's accurate, both are accurate, it's not either or. They translated it as just one thing, and I love that because it's almost as if I'm hearing Paul say, hey, I've told you these things so far, and then it's kind of that that wise older man going, hey, listen, 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 one thing. This is the parent taking the kid's face between their hands and say, listen to me. All right? If you don't hear me before, hear me now. If you didn't get that, be sure you get this. Focus, focus, focus. Just one thing. Let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. A little heavy statement there, right? I give you three quick points on what this means. First, I believe God has called us as his church to a singular focus. Singular focus. Let the way you live be worthy of the Christ you serve. I was had the, the privilege of being on an ordination council yesterday for a, an associate pastor at Faith Baptist Church in Mandarin. I was there with Rick Wheeler and some other, Ricky Powell and some other pastors in our city. And, and at the end of that ordination ser- uh, service where we laid hands on this, prior to laying hands on this gentleman and praying for him, we were each asked to just give him a word of encouragement and challenge. And I went to Ephesians 4, and I don't know if it's kind of, I don't know if we're having life verse today or what, but this was a passage I read in seminary and I couldn't get over it. I highlighted it in every Bible I have. I highlight it in the Bible the kids get next week, they're second graders. Here's what Paul said to the Ephesians in a prison again, writing to another church. He says, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. I have worn that as a verse upon my my ministry ever since I said yes, realizing I am not worthy of the calling God has given me, but God is worthy, therefore I best walk that way. Need to match my words. God has an expectation for Christians. This comes after Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. 
His point is this. Those who dare to call themselves Christians had better live in such a way as to be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not a works theology. This is not legalism. This is actually freedom in Christ that says you have an opportunity to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What an incredible gift you've been given. What does that mean? What does that mean as Christians? What does that mean for us? What does that look like? Believers in Christ, followers of Christ, make statements about the gospel. And we make statements with our lips. So you can just file away that philosophy that says, I'm just going to live a godly life and let people watch me. That's bogus. It's not biblical. It's not even an Augustinian quote. It's wrong on so many levels. Your mouth declares the gospel you believe. If you've never said anything about it, for shame. For shame. That which comes off your lips needs to match what happens in your life. That means this, the gospel you declare matches who you are in the living room on Monday night, just like it happens on Sunday morning at church or Wednesday at work. If your kids at home do not see the Jesus in you you proclaim on Sunday, you may be a fake. And that's the declaration of the gospel. Paul is not pulling any punches. Why would he? He's in prison. What's he got to lose? Live in a manner worthy of your calling. Don't embarrass this Lord we serve. Wow. That hits me. That hits me in an age, I don't know if you knew this, but we live in an era where everything you did years ago could come back to haunt you. Therefore, why don't you make sure the things you do today won't come back to haunt you later? Live in a manner worthy of the gospel with which you have been saved. The gospel is about love, therefore you better be saying love things and showing love. The gospel is about justice, therefore you better seek and speak for that. The gospel is about life, therefore you must be joyous and living in such a way that declares that life is good. The gospel is about freedom, and that is not a political statement, nor is that a statement about our nation or anything else. That is a statement about spiritual freedom which kills legalism. The gospel leads us to humility. Therefore, we must think less of ourselves and more of others. Ultimately, the gospel is always about Christ. He is the gospel. He is the good news. He is the redemption. God has called us to a singular focus. Secondly, God has called us to stand firmly. I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake. I was in one in Ohio. That's, I know you're thinking, Ohio, that's the center of earthquake activity. Well, outside of California, Ohio and Tennessee is on a fault line, and there is a huge earthquake. It just only happens like once every 100 years. Real Foot Lake was found, was created by an earthquake. It's going to happen again. And if you've ever stood on ground that was shaking, it's scary. I was laying on the couch trying to watch the Cincinnati Bengals play football as a junior high student. And it woke me up. That's how scared I was. It was Sunday afternoon. I was taking a nap. There was an earthquake last night in Haiti. I don't know if you knew this. I saw an update from our mission. It was a little further north, but it was a, a pretty severe earthquake. They're waiting to hear all the reports. Our mission is okay. Our folks are okay. The buildings are okay. But I don't know if you know this, but Haiti is susceptible to earthquakes too. That's why they made the news a few years ago. To stand on ground that's not firm is frightening. Paul says, Christians, the ground you stand on better be Christ, because he is the only firm foundation. 
Stand firmly upon him. And then he says this. He says, stand together, stand as one spirit, stand with one mind, stand as one church. He uses military imagery and they get that because they understand the military just like we understand the military. The army, the navy, the air force, our military, the marines, coast guard, the space force, let's get them all. We're all moving. You got to be moving in one direction. You got to know that the guy in your foxhole, even though he wears the same uniform, is really on your team. Right? That's what he's saying. You've got to trust the guy in church to be on your team. Then, then, this is, I'm going to skip this section here because I'm running late. The third point is this. This is good. This is so good, I'm going to tell you. God has called us to serve faithfully. Paul loves sports. If people get all upset, preach, you talk about sports too much. Paul did it all the time. I'm going to run the race, going to finish the race. I mean, he's a sports guy. He uses it to make points. So in this is a sports analogy. He says, church, you are one standing side by side. I didn't know that was a sports reference. I did a little research. That's a sports reference. You know what it's about? It's about some weird first century wrestling tactic. I know Dean Gancy is our resident wrestler. I don't know if he's here. Is he here? There. You're welcome. I pointed you out. All right. So Dean, Dino, Dean Arino, listen to me. So wrestling, uh, there's two kinds of wrestling that are, there's really a bunch, but two primary ones that we know of in America today. There is the kind that Dean does at Orange Park High where they lay on the ground and, and roll all over each other. There's that. Did I describe it right? Yeah, you got to pin each other. Then there's the kind where, you know, it's tag team cage match, WWE, and that's a different world. This is apparently a third kind. This is team wrestling, but not tag team. And it's really hard for me to get my head about how this looks. I guess they line up and they attack each other and they roll around and pin each other. I don't know how it worked. Don't necessarily know, but I've read through this. I'm going, why does he use this illustration? And, and one commentator says, and I think he's right, if we're going to transliterate that to our culture today, here's a good example. Paul is saying, you're on one team. You're like the lineman on a football team. You are lined up side by side with your teammates and you're in the trenches together and you've been given a task, a play, and you have to run it. And if you don't do it, then something bad happens to your team. If you're all not on the same page working together, the odds are the team suffers. If I'm in here and I do my job, I'm taking care of that guy. This guy, I'm expecting you to take care of your guy. Now, why does Paul use that? Because he's saying the church is the same way. And here's where it really gets personal, and we'll see if you come back next week after this. Listen. Every player on a team has a position to play, and every coach that's good will say, just do your job. And if you do your job, we will win. If you don't, the entire team suffers. Serving faithfully can mean many different things to many different people in the church. I shared this this morning at 8 o'clock. We have more, our average age at 8 o'clock is a little higher than it is now. And I hear from the seniors, let me just go ahead and say what I hear. I know what you're thinking and saying. I can't physically do what I used to could do. To my, and I hear you and I understand that. And my response is God knows that. You're not revealing anything to Him that surprises Him. But, but, apparently we have an Amber Alert hitting. But he expects you, 
just like he expects all of us. All right, Tedrick Mazion. Let's pray. Father, we pray for this Amber Alert and for the circumstances regarding this one. Seminole County, we don't know the details, but we know you do. And as all of us are being notified right now on our phones, and some will be later, may every time we hear the buzz, we say a prayer. Thank you, Lord, for hearing them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so God calls us faithfully. I don't, uh, where am I on time? Oh, good, I'm over. Look, whatever, blame it on the Amber Alert, I don't know. Whatever that looks like in your life, rest assured on this truth. No Christian is expected to join a church and do nothing but soak up Bible studies, music, and spiritual activities without serving in the church. Let me just go ahead and just step on all of our toes, but I've got a whole bunch of announcements at the end of the service of where there are many, many needs of service. And I'm saying a church is sinning when I have to read that list. It should never be that way. God does not save us to sit. No Christian wants to know, nobody wants to know that the one that he or she is relying on to do their part of the kingdom work is doing nothing for the sake of the kingdom. I want to know that when I'm in that foxhole that my teammates and my members of my army are with me, not back there drinking tea. I want to know that when I'm on the front lines in the trenches as a lineman that this person and this person is doing what they're supposed to do. I am not supposed to do what they're supposed to do. I am supposed to do what I am supposed to do. And if I do this faithfully, I want to be able to trust that they're doing that faithfully. But if they're not doing that faithfully, then no wonder people get frustrated at church and quit serving. I'm the only one that does everything. Well, maybe you are. Maybe no one wants to work with you. Or maybe it's their fault. I don't think anybody's innocent. I think it's a unity issue. Paul knows this. He hears things. There's a gap in the church, and the church is suffering. We'll get to specifics later, but he rises, he, he lifts up and says, guys, I'm hearing good things, but he'll come back and say, but you need to work on these things. Let me tell you, First Baptist Orange Park, there are some good things going on, but we need to work on these things. We need to remember these things. What was happening in the Philippian church? Here's what was happening. You had church members that were angry at each other. You had church members that blamed other people for things being done or not being done well in the church. You had church members in Philippi that lamented that when they signed up to do something, no one else showed up. Who signed up? Who's going to do this? Well, I don't know. How many students are going up to that event? We don't know yet. They're all waiting to see what their friends are going to do. I don't know. What nobody is committing, nobody says. So we end up with this very frustrating moment in the church in Philippi. That's what was happening then. How does it manifest itself today in the 21st century American evangelical church that is categorized by consumerism more than we want it to be? Well, it makes itself known sometimes in disunity. By the way, whenever this church is not unified, it is a sin. No getting around it. And disunity develops quickly. At other times, it's a slow development, but mostly quickly. Sometimes there's a ringleader in the center, and sometimes it's the pastor. Or it's somebody else. Sometimes there's a fear-based division that develops. People get, people get upset over stuff that doesn't matter. And it creates a, you know, you know we have an enemy that hates the church. You know that, right? The devil hates God. The devil hates the church. The devil hates you. Happy day. So, he is bent not on making you feel really bad, but by he is bent to destroy you. That's why your marriages fail and struggle. That's why our relationships with our kids struggle. That's why churches dissolve. The enemy wants to kill us. But 
the good news is that our God is greater than our enemy. We just need to remember that. Now look here. I'll, I'll do this as fast as I can. Sometimes people get bent out of shape because of dress code. Sometimes they get bent out of shape because of music style. I've heard this, Mark Clifton, who works for our North American Mission Board, he is working with churches like the ones we're trying to help that have about 20 people left that have, they're struggling to survive. One of the things he says he hears over and over among these 50-year-old churches that only have about 10 or 15 people left is there, is a, there are some common complaints and things that they have across the board. One of them is that the people get really bent out of shape when someone dares bring a cup of coffee into the sanctuary. Sometimes you get upset if someone brings coffee in here. Have you seen our carpet? Does it really matter? I mean, seriously, look at this. We'll talk about offerings later, and then we'll get new carpet. But look here. I love what Clifton says because it changes the perspective. He says at no point in the history of ever has a cup of coffee walked into a sanctuary not attached to an arm, which is attached to a person. And he says we get so bent out of shape over things that may keep people from coming to Christ, but keep some semblance of things that, oh, do they matter? Yeah, yeah, they matter, but not more than a soul. Not more than a person. Unity in Christ and uniformity are not the same thing. Uniformity means we're all the same. We're not all the same. We're very unique. Just look around. But unity means we are unified in Christ. When it comes to the why of the church and the focus of the Christian life within the body, we must be unified. To be anything other than unified in Christ is nothing more than sin that's going to keep us from being the church God has called us to be. This is not easy. This is the challenge we face. I told my wife uh, last week that ever since I surrendered to the call of pastoral ministry, I have felt like I was running a race. Running a race on a track trying to get to the finish line. And every time I get to a point where I think, we're here, I realize I have three or four more laps to go every single time. And it echoes from what I'm hearing from some of you who come to me and go, Pastor, it feels like we're just this close to breakthrough. We're this close to something amazing happening in here. Do you know how I feel? I have felt that way since 1994 when I came here. This church is the perpetual, on the edge, almost there, we're like the athlete that has a lot of potential. For me, I think the best days are ahead. I really am. I really am, am in that mode. I, I, I realize there's another few laps to go. I think when this church was founded in May of 1921, our first service meeting in a school at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Can you imagine? What church would dare want to meet in a cafeteria? It seems like we're coming full circle. That's where I just left. I think that ever since that moment in 1921, we have come close to being all that God would have us to be. I'm encouraged, I'm challenged, but I don't think we've ever been what God intends us to be. I don't think we've been there yet. I think some of us are driving around with really large rearview mirrors and really small front windshields. Let me tell you, I don't want to ride with you. We have a great past and we have a somewhat past. But if this church continues to move forward while looking at the past and how things used to be, we're never going to be what God has called us to be. We'll be focused on reaching people that lived 20, 30 years ago but aren't even alive today. Let me just go ahead and clarify this in case you're wondering where I am in this. Because I've heard these rumors. 
I know it's no one. It had to be someone at another church starting it. Some have said, well, when he gets, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting uh, this other degree. And they're like, oh, when he gets that degree, he's going to leave. Well, where am I going? Who wants a 50-year-old guy? They're not going to hire me. I mean, bad knees. and I mean, I don't have anywhere to go. I don't even have a resume. So I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm where I need to be. But let me just go ahead and paint this picture for you. If it ever gets to the point for me that pastoring this church is, an, is enough and I'm satisfied with where we are, if I ever get to the point where I'm satisfied just pastoring, if I ever get to the point where I'm just satisfied trying to keep groups in different buildings happy and keep offerings coming in, if it ever gets to the point where, where I'm just okay with having a gathering every week so we can say we're still a church, let me just say, if I'm ever to that point where I'm satisfied with where we are, I'm done and you need to get rid of me. It's over. It's over. For me, that type of church is not only dead, but it's going to suck the life out of everybody that dares submit themselves to a pew. Paul's joy shines through in his instructions to this church, and I find joy in this. Even as he wags his finger and says, just this one thing, listen to me, I am challenged. I am convicted that to keep this one thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ himself at the forefront, to serve him well, to be the church that he's called us to be, to be his ambassadors in a world that doesn't want him, and to challenge each of us to get up and do something for the sake of the gospel that God has so much more for us we can't even fathom what it might be. Acts 17.6 is a verse that just shakes me. Jason, Jason, biblical name Jason, didn't know if you knew that. They were looking for Paul and Silas, couldn't find him, arrested Jason and some other Christians, brought him in, brought him before the people. And here's a paraphrase. Acts 17.6 says, These men who have turned the world upside down. Now, I don't know, but I mean, if you design youth group t-shirts, that's awesome. That's the group you want to be a part of. Hey, where do you go to church? I go to the church that turns the world upside down. I want First Baptist Orange Park and all of our campuses to be known as the people that are turning the world upside down for the sake of the gospel, not satisfied in who we are and where we are. 